This is a CBC Podcast. This is Canada Reads, Canada's annual title fight. Hello, I'm Ali Hassan, the host of Canada Reads. And to get you ready for the great Canadian book debate, we put together this special pre-show podcast. Each episode takes a look at a different panelist and the book they've chosen to champion. This year, we're looking for the one book to shift your perspective. And the contenders this year are Ducks by Kate Beaton, Greenwood by Michael Christie, Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel, Hotline by Dimitri Nasrallah, and Mexican Gothic by Silvia Moreno-Garcia, which will be championed by TikTok creator Tasneem Gidi. And that's the book we're going to take a closer look at in this episode. Mexican Gothic is a horror novel set in 1950s Mexico. It tells the story of a young woman named Noemi, who is called by her cousin to save her from doom in her countryside home. Here's the trailer. Noemi Taboada is a rich socialite, living a life of luxury in 1950s Mexico City. But one day, her cousin, Catalina, sends a letter. Catalina is in distress. Her English husband, Virgil Doyle, has plans to poison her. Noemi sets off to Catalina's home in the mountains to rescue her cousin. But the dark, dank mansion, the high place, has secrets of its own. What lies within is unspeakable violence and a family curse. Noemi must face her fears and destroy the high place once and for all. Mexican Gothic came out in 2020. At that time, it was a New York Times bestseller, and now it's in development to become a TV series for Hulu. And of course, it is on Canada Reads. When the book first came out, Silvia Moreno-Garcia spoke to Sheila Rogers on the next chapter. Here is part of that conversation. You set the story in 1950, and Noemi, who is the heroine, she's 22, she's rich, she's independent, And all of this flies in the face of the culture, the patriarchal culture that wants to see her kind of reined in and uh, married off. What interested you about that time, about the year 1950? 1950 seemed just about right in in a Goldilocks kind of way, Mm. because women are going to get the vote in 1953 in Mexico. So this is just before women get the vote, but it's after the Mexican Revolution, it's kind of this interim period where some things are have changed in terms of how women are perceived and the rights and freedoms that they have, mm-hmm. but there's still many constraints. And the desire is still that a woman, she may you know, waste her time a little bit doing these kind of academic pursuits, but ultimately yeah. the final goal is to get married and to have children. Yeah, and and um, you know this is this is the path that maybe her father thinks she should be on, but she's a very independent character. Did you model her on somebody? I was inspired by a couple of things. Uh, one of them was a photo of my great aunt where she was at a party, I guess, and she's wearing 
you know, 1950s dress, and she's looking over her shoulder. She's sitting with a young man. The way the photo was taken and the way it's framed, your eye goes directly onto her face. You don't see the man or the other people in the room, and you just kind of are looking at her, and she's looking right back at you, mm-hmm. very kind of self-assured and poised. And that was one of the mm-hmm. initial images. The other was that um, my maternal grandmother came from a working class family. Uh, My great grandmother was a maid and my great grandfather repaired radios. And she wanted to go and study medicine. But her father torpedoed that idea because he said that if she studied medicine, that would mean going to school with men. Mm. Instead, she went to secretary school. It was Mm. a suitable occupation for a woman and she needed to contribute to the family's finances. On the other side of my family, my my paternal grandmother and my my paternal great aunts, a couple of them never got married because they came they had more money and they were able to make different choices. So they became solteronas, they were unmarried women. And they traveled a little bit more and they were able to do other kinds of things and play a little bit of the socialite game. So I took some stuff from my family mm. uh, and also from just the time period of what mm. it might have been like to be a young woman of, of, of certain means. There's also a stunning visual on the cover of your book. Listen, I promise we're going to get to the story, but um, this this beautiful woman is uh, is sitting in a, a cerise-colored dress against uh, really stunning-looking wallpaper, and then there's the title. Mexican Gothic, which is gets to the point, doesn't it? Yes, it does. I, I hope so. And I hope it's intriguing enough that people would pick it up. How did you come to the title? It was originally a working title. I was going to come up with something more elaborate for the final title. The more I used it, the more I liked it. And then there were several reasons why I ended up going with this one in the end. But one important reason was because often when you are Latin, a Latin American writer or a writer of Latin American descent, all your work gets classified as magic realism, mm. no matter what it is. And we are kind of pigeonholed in that category. I thought if I call it Mexican Gothic, it's going to be very hard for them to say magic realism, <laughs> right? It's, it's on the title. And I think it has worked. It is unfortunate that so much stuff gets classified under that label when, in fact, most modern Latin American writers are not writing in that category. That is really kind of old-fashioned. Well, there, there is and there are mysteries in this novel, small M mysteries, and at the center of the story... There's a haunted manor house. It's it's on a mountain in the countryside. What did you draw on for this particular setting? The town in Mexican Gothic is based on a real town. The real town is called Mineral, Mineral del Monte, and it was a silver mining town. It's located in central Mexico, high up in the mountains of Hidalgo. It has a curious history because it was mined by the British in the 19th century, That's what earned it the nickname Little Cornwall. Mm. And just like in my novel, there is an English cemetery there, full of English people and English gravestones, and it tends to be misty and cold and rainy. 
especially during certain times of the year. And this area, as you say, is mined by the British, and Mm -hmm. you're looking at a time when mining operations were shut down. The owners of the manor are the Doyle family, who are from England, and they've been there for generations. What is what is the legacy of of silver mining in in your story? But also, if you could pull the focus a bit wider, uh, Mexico was one of the biggest silver producers in in the world, and what happened was that it was not like silver production in a nice way. We give you a nice wage, and you go and you and you go get the silver mining has always been a very dangerous occupation. But when you're talking about the 1700s and and the 1600s and the 1800s, those kinds of periods, it was even more dangerous. And miners in Mexico were not necessarily volunteering to do this labor. Some of this was forced labor versus several systems of forced labor. Um, it was slavery, too. Um, it was very coercive. Um, and sometimes outright violent. And aside from that, there have been, you know, a lot of environmental issues associated with mines for a really long time. So mining has a really fraught history in all of Latin America, and specifically in Mexico. It's, uh, and this is also uh, very much part of the backdrop to your story in Mexican Gothic. But to get the, the action going, Noemi, the heroine, goes to this house, which is called High Place, to see what's behind a really distressing letter that her cousin Catalina has sent to Noemi's father. What has the family that she has married into done to Noemi's cousin? Well, uh, Noemi's cousin, Catalina, married very quickly and perhaps thoughtlessly. She was very much a romantic and she actually seemed to enjoy gothic type novels, but gothic romances with her in Heights, Jane Eyre. And unfortunately, I don't think she read a lot of gothic horror where she would have known that going to live up in a isolated mansion in the middle of nowhere sometimes is not a recipe for passionate romance, but a recipe <laughs> for disaster. Yeah, yeah. And she, uh, and she eventually writes a letter where she says, my husband is trying to kill me, and the walls are pe- speaking to me, and there's ghosts in the walls. Noemi is sent by her father to figure out what's going on there. Her father's concerns are much more mundane. He is concerned that she's either having a nervous breakdown and uh, needs to be institutionalized or her husband is taking advantage of her. And so they want to figure out what's going on and they want to do it quietly because this is a prominent family. Uh, Noemi is a socialite. Catalina would have been a socialite too. They don't want to have uh, a terrible story splashed in the front pages of the newspaper. Now, I'll just tell you another story about my family. When my grandmother and my grandfather divorced, Um, their children, my father and his siblings, were not allowed to reveal that their parents had divorced because otherwise they would have been expelled from their Catholic school. So Mm -hmm. reputation and a woman's place in society is a perilous and contested space. And 
some people might think, you know, modern readers might think, well, why don't they just call the authorities and all that kind of stuff? Again, it's 1950. Women are not going to get the right to vote until 1953. And you've got this prevailing social um, morality that makes it difficult to just say, to hell with my husband, I'm getting on the bus mm. and I'm leaving. And so Noemi is walking into this space and needs to be kind of very careful about it. But her father thinks she might be right for the job precisely because she's a socialite. She's used to navigating complicated situations. I think it's really interesting that um, part of what she draws on are the skills that a socialite is supposed to have. Yes, she, um, aside from her keen sense of fashion, she is aware of kind of the limits and the ways that a woman can navigate uh, a social labyrinth and the minefields that are built into that. So she comes in and uh, one of the things that she has to deal with is these different types of people, but also these different types of men. And there's Mm. the patriarch, Howard Doyle, but there's also Virgil Doyle, who's married to her cousin. And how does she interact with him? Because... Again, it's it's not a question where you can say, well, I'm going to get on my cell phone and I'm going to phone the police if I don't like what's going on here. Another one of your interests uh, is, is well represented in the book, and that's mushrooms and, and fungus. And I know you've co-edited a book called Fungi. What is your interest in mushrooms and fungus? Oh, they're a very interesting biological category. We tend to think of them normally as vegetables because in the produce aisle they're next to cucumbers and other kinds of things and pizza toppings. (laughs) But mushrooms belong to this group called fungi that is neither a vegetable nor an animal. It's its own kind of thing, its own kind of realm. And they have really interesting relationships and applications I read a couple of books for this novel. One of them is called The Sacred Mushroom on the Cross. And the other one is Mushrooms, Myth, and Mithras. And both of those books talk about how ethanogenic substances, which we would call hallucinogenic substances, have been connected and used in religious practices across different cultures. So we eat mushrooms, but we also use them to experience um, altered states. Sylvia, another area that uh, I found so interesting through the book is uh, is the the parts where characters are sleeping, where they're waking, but also where there's they're in this sort of liminal uh, space, where they're they're sleeping but they're awake and they're wa- sleepwalking. What what does this do to them? It seems to be one of the effects of the house on on Noemi and and her cousin. Um, what does it do to them, and what, what do you want it to do to the reader? I know some people don't like dream sequences, but I actually do like them <laughs> quite a bit. And, and, in, this, um, and in this book, the, the dream sequences are not just, you know, dreams. They are kind of portals to a different sort, sort of reality or a, or a kind of irreality. There's there's that kind of confusion, too, in the character of Virgil, who is cousin Catalina's husband. Uh, Noemi feels there's also something charismatic and, and seductive about him. What does he bring out in Noemi? 
Well, Virgil is kind of the Byronic hero who appears in a lot of Gothic books, uh, your Mr. Rochester or your Heathcliff. And those men are kind of dark and dangerous to know, and yet the, the heroine is normally interested in them. So even though Heathcliff says, I'm a villain, literally, in Wuthering Heights, a lot of women still sigh and swoon and go like, oh, if only I could get together with Heathcliff. Um, so he does have that kind of raw uh, sexuality and he is good looking and she butts heads with him. But there's also an aspect of danger and she seems to be uh, kind of flipping between emotions in that sense, which is a very gothic thing to do. In your acknowledgments, you thank your mother for letting you read scary stories and watch scary movies. What has that meant for your writing? Uh, yeah, um, yeah, when some people have asked what was the research process like for Mexican Gothic, it's, it's hard to explain because on, on the one side, yes, I read a lot of history books and things about mining in the 1950s and I also had all this kind of gigantic back catalog in my head of things that I had been reading since I was a teenager and the thing that nobody would have thought was useful when I was a teenager while you're watching all these horrible movies and reading all these horrible things turned out to be great because I had this enormous repository of information and of ideas about tropes um, one of the things that I watched when I was a teenager were the movies of Carlos Enrique Taboada, after whom my heroine is named. Mm. He made four gothic movies in, in Mexico, and they are very interesting because they are different from what most people perceive as Mexican and as, you know, horror. Carlos Enrique Taboada made movies that are very much gothic, they have me Mexican actors, they're speaking in Spanish, and yet they don't conform to any of the stereotypes that we expect of Mexicanidad. And that was one of the things that I love. It was that they depart from this space of exoticism that is often demanded of us. And when I was thinking of Mexican Gothic, I named my heroine after him because I was mm. very grateful that I got to see some of those when I was growing up. And that they were kind of this visual fodder and influence in the back of my mind of just the possibility that you could do gothic in Mexico and that you didn't have to do it in a pastiche kind of cocoa sort of way where you would have to cram it with Day of the Dead imagery and mm -hmm. Frida Kahlo would have to show up and... Um, <laughs> And all this kind of stuff that, you know, that there were there are ways to tell stories that don't necessarily conform to the narrow expectations that people have of us. Sylvia, fascinating to talk with you and great to read you. Thank you very much. That was Sylvia Moreno-Garcia talking to Sheila Rogers on the next chapter about her horror novel, Mexican Gothic. It was chosen for Canada Reads by someone with a knack for picking great books. 
our next panelist dun, 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 read <laughs> 115 books last year. Oof. That is uh, Tasneem Gidi, a TikTok creator from Toronto. I read Final Offer this month, and I'm so sorry to say, but it is not for me. Like, I do not believe in their past. I do not believe in their present. I do not believe in their future. He is hot, but that can only take a man so far. She's known as Groovy Taz on TikTok, where she shares book reviews to over 100,000 followers. Hello. Championing Mexican Gothic is Tasneem Gidi. Tasneem is a Somali-Canadian nursing student who's best known as at Groovitas on TikTok, where she posts about her favorite books. She's one of the biggest book talk creators in Canada with over 100,000 followers, and her content has been liked more than 5 million times. She spoke with Elamine Abdel Mahmoud on commotion about Canada Reads and why she's championing Mexican Gothic. Listen, I mentioned you're a TikTok creator, but specifically you make TikTok videos about books. Let's talk about book talk because it is a huge space. How'd you get into it? Yeah, I feel like for most people during the pandemic, I downloaded TikTok for the first time. And I used to read when I was in high school. University destroyed my love for reading. And randomly, my algorithm just knew I used to be a reader in my past life. And it just put out all these book content. And I saw these comment sections and I was like, this is a book club and they're all in on a joke. And I want to be in on that joke. Right. And then over time, just commenting and making friends wasn't enough for me. So then I started creating. But I'm an anxious person, so I made sure to block everybody that I knew in my life because I didn't (laughs) want them to see that. And then once I started getting more confident in it, then I started telling people or they would find out because there'd be random, like people would repost my stuff. Be like, is this you? And I'm like, yo, that's so crazy. (laughs) How'd you get there? Yeah, how'd you even get there? I blocked you. But book talk didn't exist out of a vacuum. There used to be BookTube. There used to be Bookstagram. And I feel like if I was always in those spaces, I probably never would have lost the motivation to read. So I'm so glad that I found it because now I'm talking to you. Listen, I'm glad you found it too. And so are your 100,000 followers. It's not like it's like a couple of family members following you. No. It's a massive community. How do you navigate all that? I don't even, like sometimes I forget that people perceive me. I always just, like, it's it's not (laughs) even a joke. It's just just not me in my room. Like I don't even have like a tripod. It's just me in front of my laptop and I just film randomly. And then I'll go to a bookstore. I'll go to like randoms or even at Starbucks and I was studying. And they're like, why do I know you? And I'm like, I don't know, girl. Hard to say. We've never met. Crazy. Yeah. So little things like that. And even when I was called for the show, I'm like, how did how did you even find me? Right. So it's It's weird because of the hundred thousand followers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's hard. Sometimes I forget to conceptualize that number because it's like, (laughs) oh yeah, I forget it's a hundred thousand individual people and not just a random arbitrary number. But um, I try not to let it get to me because that's kind of terrifying to be perceived at that level. But. But listen, you're, doing, yeah. you're taking your talents, you're bringing them to Canada Reads yeah, because yeah. you're championing a book. It's called Mexican Gothic. Why this book? What's about, what is it about Mexican Gothic that you're like, you know what? I'm going to rep this book on TV. A couple of reasons. One, because they found me through my book talk. I thought, okay, I feel like it's very poetic for me to find a book that I found from book talk. Like someone randomly said, you should read Mexican Gothic. And I found and I fell in love with this. I'm like, okay. This is like a love letter to book talk and why I got back into reading. So there's that, that aspect of it. And then two, um, I had a very unique reading experience with Mexican Gothic. It's not that long of a book. It's 300 pages. And I'm not somebody who normally reads horror. I'm more of a fantasy girl or a romance girl. Mm-hmm. So that book, I did not expect to like a horror book. I went into it not expecting anything. And I read it in like two sittings, like under three hours. So wow. I definitely want to share that like unique reading experience with everybody, whoever like wants to pick it up for the show. So those two reasons were the main, like why I want to bring it. 
Now, you, Canada Reads is not, hey, I like this book. Canada Reads is a fight because you're out here trying yeah. to be like, this is the one book you should read. And the fact that it's horror makes your job a little bit harder. How do you convince someone to do that? Yeah, I feel like horror on its own is an underappreciated genre. So I'm so glad that I get to fight for that um, and bring that to the show. And also, it's not just a horror book. Like, there are so many different aspects. Mm. Like, Sylvia Moreno, she's written so many different books and she brings so many of her other expertise and her other genres into it. So you may be thinking, oh, it's just a horror book. But no, there are so many important themes in this story. Like, she talks a lot about colonialism, especially yeah. in Mexico City. She has a little bit of paranormal romance, which is not something that I would expect when going into it. So I feel like everybody will get something out of it. Like, you'll go in expecting one thing and walk out leaving a thousand. So mm. I definitely have something to bring to it. I'm not the most aggressive fighter, but who knows? On March Day, on March, that might change. You know what, though? The, you're, the, the idea of not being much of a fighter might end up being a service to you because it's a little bit of the show is also about allyship, about yeah. getting somebody else to be like, I'm going to be on your side on this. Uh, we got Matea Roach coming on next week. They're defending Ducks by Kate Beaton. Since Gannon Rees is kind of like Survivor for books, you get a chance to make an ally before the show. What do you want to say to Matea right now? I just found out that they're from Toronto as well. Yes. So I feel like out of local solidarity, just out of <laughs> same postal code energy, we should be on the same same level, hopefully. But we'll see. We'll see on game day. It might change. Tazneem, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, no worries. Thank you for having me. That was Tasneem Gidi talking to Elamine Abdul Mahmoud about being part of Canada Reads. She's championing the horror novel Mexican Gothic by Silvia Moreno-Garcia. They are one of the five contenders in this year's Great Canadian Book Debate. You can learn more about all the champions and their chosen books in other episodes of this podcast. And here is Tasneem one last time with her one-minute pitch for Mexican Gothic. Mexican Gothic, in one word, is unsettling. We meet our main character, Noemi, a glamorous debutante from the 1950s who travels to this ominous manor in the countryside after receiving a concerning letter from her newlywed cousin, Catalina, to save her from her Englishman husband and his family. This is a story that truly embodies its genre. You get everything you want from your typical Gothic horror book, a creepy mansion on top of a hill, decaying glamour, haunting family secrets, and a chilling atmosphere. But what truly elevates this story is Sylvia's use of the horror genre to touch on much larger issues that we as Canadians still need to confront. I don't want to spoil much, but this book is riveting, a little gory, but more importantly, really good. That was Tasneem Gidi making a case for why Mexican Gothic is the one book to shift your perspective. Canada Reads takes place March 27th to the 30th. You can find out more about this year's contenders at cbcbooks.ca. I'm Ali Hassan. This is the Canada Reads pre-show podcast. Until next time, read on, Canada. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.